Let's go to the Lord. God, thank you and praise you for this day. Thank you for your watch, care, and your protection over us, Lord. We, with the events of the day and with the, the seasons that we are in, Lord, where we believe that you are returning at any moment, we, more and more we can see just how fragile life is as we pray for uh, a three-week-old baby who's, who's struggling to keep food down, um, and we see the events of uh, in San Bernardino and the shootings today. We just, Lord, we know you're sovereign over all, um, and you're in control. But uh, we just pray that your peace would reign and rule. We pray that evil would be thwarted. We pray, God, that you would stay this these things, God. And the best way I think that that could happen is if you would just return. And then we know you rule and reign on earth, and you are perfectly just. So, but you're long-suffering and patient. You desire that none would perish. So each day that you give us, I pray that we would shine brightly for you, and we wouldn't hide ourselves under a bushel basket. Father, now that we have time to study your word tonight, we ask God that you would guide and direct us as we work our way through Isaiah, Lord, and that we would uh, just remember just how much you love us. We praise you. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Especially as you read through the first 39 chapters of the book of Isaiah, you can almost, if you read it in succession, or if even, even if you study it as we're studying it, a few chapters every week, you can get this overwhelming sense that God's mean. I mean, it's judgment upon judgment, and it's strong, and it's harsh, and it doesn't relent, and it's chapter after chapter, and it's just like, man, Lord. So you, you have to look for these respites. It's almost as if Isaiah were writing them, and writing the, through these woes and these judgments pronounced against Jerusalem, and against Judah, and against the nations around Israel, and, and it's almost like Isaiah says, enough. Uh, just enough. I need. I need. Some, I need to look at something else. I need to think about something else. I need to focus on the goodness of God. And and there's these pauses in these chapters where he fast forwards to the time when when Jesus will be ruling and reigning. That thousand year reign after the great tribulation, where Jesus comes back to earth, sets up shop in the city of Jerusalem, rules from Mount Zion, and and pronounces right and proper and just judgments. And Isaiah's like, that's, that's where the peace comes from in, in Isaiah's heart and in his life. And, and that's where we need to gain our peace from as well, especially as we see all that is going on. And that's kind of where we're at right now as we head into Isaiah chapter 27. We, we, we turned that corner last week in chapters 25 and, 24, 25, and 26. We looked at the thousand-year reign extensively. It's going to continue in 27. And then we head back into the woes and into the judgments. What I want us to say before what I wanted to say before we get started was you got to remember that as Isaiah is pronouncing this, and it is one chapter upon another, and it seems to be God is unrelenting, there are seasons and there are years and centuries where God is long suffering where he's patient and kind, and he's waiting for Judah to repent. He's waiting for the nations around to, to perhaps turn their hearts towards God. He's offering a chance upon chance upon chance 
for people to return to him, and people don't. That's the sadness of the matter. So it says in Isaiah 27, verse 1, in that day, that day being, we're talking still the thousand-year reign, and and probably the transition from the Great Tribulation into the thousand-year reign, or even um, toward the end, it could be at the beginning or toward the end. It says, in that day, the Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, that twisted serpent. He will slay the reptile that is in the sea. And so we see this now scene where there is a battle that is ensuing with God being on one side of the battle and what is known as Leviathan on the other side. And we see these this, this triptych comparison of the Lord's punishment in His sword. The sword is severe, and it's great, and it's strong. And then we see on the other side of the battle, this Leviathan, who is the fleeing serpent. He's the twisted serpent. He's the reptile. And in fact, in the King James Version, he's the dragon, is what it says. And, 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 and so you, you just see this, I don't want to call it an offsetting battle, but you see this battle because... It's not offsetting. The Lord is fully in control. But as Jesus is ruling and reigning from Jerusalem, we see now this battle. And it it hearkens itself unto the end of the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent, of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. We know that that battle is coming. We have the um, the fleeing serpent, the twisted serpent. The word twisted there means coiled, like a snake would coil. The ready-to-strike serpent, and he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. In verse 2 it says, In that day, sing to her a vineyard of red wine. Now it's interesting, when we were way back in chapter 5, like three months ago, two months ago, we heard about a vineyard in that chapter as well, only that it was a vineyard that was barren and overgrown and run down. And anytime we read of a vineyard, a reference to a vineyard, especially in the Old Testament, uh, we, we liken that to a, um, a re- or we make that a reference to the nation of Israel. And so while the, in chapter 5, what Isaiah was looking at was Israel destitute, was as Israel struck down, overgrown, and, and, and decimated, here in chapter 27, we see a vineyard of red wine, a vineyard that's been restored, Israel being re-established and, and now producing the fruit that God always wanted it to produce. And that will come in that day when, when Jesus rules from Jerusalem. In verse 3, it says, I, the Lord, keep it. I water it every moment. Lest any hurt it, I keep it night and day. And so we see that, that God is the one producing the proper fruit. He is the one that is tending to the vineyard. He's, he's caring for Israel. He's, he's their guard. He's their waterer. He's their provider. Watching over at night and day. It says in verse 4, Fury is not in me. 
Who would set briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them together. You got to remember that God, especially as he's dealing with the nation of Israel, as he's pronouncing judgment upon them and and, and, and what's going to happen to them, the intent and the purpose of God bringing these things, leveling these things against Jerusalem, is discipline. It's not fury. God's not just going off. He's not just upset for the, no reason, you know, like our parents or, or even us as parents, have, we've, we've done that to our kids. And you just, you finally blow up and you go off full of fury. That's not God. God never loses control of his temper, he's always in control, and, and, and this is not a matter of fury. He's like, try to come against me in this. Set up thorns, set up briars, and I will go through them. And to me, that's like, that's God pronouncing his love. We've got to remember that chastisement, discipline, from the hand of the Lord or from a hand of a parent, when done properly, is done in love. Why do you discipline your kids? Because you care, because you love them, because you want to see the best for them. You want to see them learn and grow. Don't play in the street. So you discipline them to correct them so that they don't get hit by a car. And that's what God is saying. There's no fury in me. This is for chastisement. This is for discipline. Verse 5, Or let him take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. The, 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 the hand that God is extending through this discipline and through this chastisement is a hand of, of peace. It's a hand of love to say, take my hand, take my strength, take hold of me, and you'll be at peace. We read last week in Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 3, Isaiah says, of God, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Because he trusts in you. You want perfect peace. Keep your mind set on him, on God. And God here offering the invitation in verse 5, take hold of me, take hold of my strength, that your peace may be with me. Verse 6 is an interesting verse. It says, those who come, he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. Hear what, hear what is happening here to the nation of Israel as God is showering his blessing upon it. He's saying, I'm the one. I provide for the vineyard. I take care of the vineyard. I water the vineyard. And, and because of that, fruit is going to be produced. And, and many bountiful things, many beautiful things are going to come out of the nation of Israel. It's evident. Even today, even before we've reached that time, if you take a, an honest and serious look at the nation of Israel, it's evident God's hand is upon it. It's evident that God is blessing the nation of Israel. There is no question anybody with any reasonable thought that, that God's hand has to be on the nation of Israel for them to be in the situation that they're in. It's, it, it, it's perfectly clear. What does it say? Um, um, perfectly obvious to the most casual of observers. Something along those lines, right? I can't remember how the exact saying goes. But that God's blessing the land of Israel. God's blessing the people of Israel. I found an interesting article from a Dr. Jim Beckman, or Jim Ekman is his name. The article is written, uh, is entitled, Israel, a Channel of God's Blessing. And I just want to read a little bit of it just to show you how there are proofs in 
society today that God's hand is upon the nation of Israel. He says, there are about 18 million Jews worldwide. This article was written in 2013, so the number, I'm sure, is up a little bit from that. There are about 18 million Jews worldwide, 0.2% of the world's population. Very small number, in actuality, are Jewish. But Jews make up 54% of the world's chess champions. 0.2% of the population makes up more than half the world's chess champions. 27% of Nobel Physics laureates and 31% of medicine laureates. Within the United States, Jews make up but 2% of the U.S. population, but 21% of Ivy League student bodies, 26% of the Kennedy Center honorees, 37% of the academic award-winning directors, 38% of those on a recent Business Week list of philanthropists, and 51% of the Pulitzer Prize winners for nonfiction. Within the nation of Israel itself, Tel Aviv has become one of the world's foremost entrepreneurial centers, a new Silicon Valley, in fact. For example, Intel is the largest private sector employer in Israel, with more than 8,000 employees, four design centers, and two manufacturing plants. The Israelis who manage the R&D centers are responsible for much of the microprocessor innovation over the past 20 years developing chips for desktop computers, laptops, tablets, and smartphones. Columnist David Brooks writes that Israel has more high-tech startups per capita than any other nation on earth by far. It leads the world in civilian research and development spending per capita. It ranks second behind the U.S. in the number of companies listed on the NASDAQ. Israel, with 7 million people, attracts as much venture capital as France and Germany combined. Israel has used the present financial crisis in the world uh, to solidify the econo- economy's long-term future by investing in research and development and infrastructure, raising some consumption taxes, promising to cut other taxes in the recovery story of Europe, the Middle East, oh, I'm sorry, in the medium to long term. The financial giant, the, <laughs> easy for me, the financial giant Barclays argues that Israel is the strongest recovery story in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. Finally, the nation of Israel is nothing short of astounding in terms of its creativity, scientific genius, and technological savvy. Uh, For example, between 1980 and 2000, Egyptians registered 77 patents in the U.S. Saudis registered 171. Israel registered 76 or 7,652 patents. Uh, Netanyahu argues that Israel would become the Hong Kong of the Middle East with its economic benefits spilling over into the Arab world. And it it just goes on from there talking about, there's a company, um, uh, Netafim, that produced the world's first drip irrigation system, uh, which consists of a series of plastic pipes with small holes that lie on the ground. And that revolutionized the way Israel made its desert bloom so that it became a leader of suppliers of fruits, vegetables, and flowers to the European market. So it's interesting that in this, in this article, he's, he's talking about the, the blessing uh, that Israel has. Not to mention that a majority of the power people in the world are, are Jewish. 
Uh, a number of the banks are run by Jewish people. It's evident that God's blessing is upon the Jewish people. And when you consider that Israel is the size of New Jersey with less people than New Jersey, 7 million people, that, that's to, to say that they're the third largest exporter of produce in the world, that's an amazing statistic. And you look at the Jordan Valley, and you can look at pictures on Google where one, you know, the valley is split um, by the, the River Jordan, and on one side where the irrigation has taken place, it's this beautiful, lush valley completely rebuilt, and you, you know, rose, roses and flowers of all kinds. They have special wood that they make there that they ship to all over the world. And, and, and then you go across the valley, across the river, and it's this dry, arid wasteland, essentially, because it's untended and uncut for. It's evident where God's hand is blessing them. It's really kind of cool to look at. If you were to go buy a flower on the streets of New York this weekend, chances are it came from Israel. You know, it's just that that's, that's they're the third large, and, and considering our verse, you know, it will fill the face of the world with fruit. Literally, the, the produce of Israel is now going all over the world. But I take that more than just physical fruit. That's also the, the, the blessing of God's hand. And it's impacting everyone. It says in verse 7, Has he struck Israel as he struck those who struck him? Or has he been slain according to the slaughter of those who were slain by him? In measure by sending it away, you contended with it. He removes it by his rough wind in the day of the east wind. He's saying, Isaiah is saying, God's not dealing with the nation of Israel. God did not, God will not deal with the nation of Israel like he did with the other nations as he pronounced judgment against the Syrians and the Babylonians and Edom and Tyre and, and all those places. God's not going to deal with the nation. A storm was coming against Judah. That is true. With the Assyrian army getting ready to march on Jerusalem, a storm was coming, but it wasn't going to overtake them. Remember, it's up to the neck, but they will survive. Verse 9, therefore by the iniquity of Jacob will, therefore by this, the iniquity of Jacob will be covered. And this is all the fruit of taking away his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altar like chalk stones that are beaten to dust, wooden images and incense altars shall not stand. The God's going to cover the iniquity of Jacob. He's going he's gonna, to, and we of course we know that ultimately through by sending his son Jesus. But what he's looking for in the nation of, of, J, of Judah is a heart that's turned back to him. And the way that he's saying a heart can be measured, a heart returning to him can be measured, is by the action or the fruit produced by that heart. It says in Matthew 3.8, and I, I, I love remembering this verse for my own life, but for, for all of our lives, Matthew 3.8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You say you're repentant. You say you're holy. You say you're living for God. You say you've got a Christian life. Does your actions, do your actions line up with your words? Or do you bear fruit in keeping with your repentance? Are you, are you actually living it out? God wants us to smash the, the wooden images, the, the break down the incense altars. In fact, he says, you need to take the idols of your life and beat them to powder, right? Make, uh, he makes all the wood stones of the altar like chalk stones that are beaten to dust. We, we need to 
It's a call to live holy lives. We, we, can't, we can't play with God. We can't live with one foot in this world. We can't just have a, a, a drawer in our life, a compartment in our life that we call Christianity, that we get out on Sunday morning or Wednesday night or at the Thanksgiving table when somebody should pray. You know, it, it has to, Jesus has to take over our lives. He's not part of our lives. He is our lives. He, he takes everything. We can't live compromised. The more I read the guys that I like to read, A.W. <laughs> Tozer and Charles Haddon Spurgeon and C.S. Lewis and you know some of the... Um, some of the guys of the last 100, 150 years. And the more I learn of their lives, I just, um, Alan Redpast, another guy, I, more and more I'm longing for a deeper intimacy with God, a greater holiness, a, a, a greater distinction between my life and the, and the life of this world. I want to I stand different. I look at A.W. Tozer, and there's a story of him inviting a guy to come pray with him in the morning. He said, meet me on the beach at 5 to come pray. This was like in December in Chicago. You know, so it's not like meet me on the beach in Key West at, after my ties. You know, this is meet me in December in Chicago on the, the, the beach there of Lake Superior. That's... Michigan, that's what I said. And uh, <laughs> Bob will fix that in the edit. It's all good. So, <laughs> Lake Michigan. I've never been to Chicago, so forgive me, but um, driven through it. But anyway, 5 a.m. on the beach, and the guy shows up at 4.45, and Tozer's there, already face down on the ground, on the sand, and it's evident that he's been there for hours. Burdened to pray, just on a Tuesday morning, or whatever day it was. And you're just like, wow, what kind of heart is that? That would, that would say, hey, meet me to pray at 5 a.m., first of all, to say that. You know, out in the middle of a blustery Chicago morning, and, and, and the guy gets there early, and, the guy, and Tozer's been there already. You know, heart enthralled in the Lord and waiting on the Lord. And, and that's, I just look at those things and, and I say, I want more of God in my life. And I'm not trying to measure up to them. I'm not trying to say, if I do this, then I'll be like them. It's, it's not a comparison. It's not anything like that. It's just to say, God, I want, I want to look more like you. I want to sound more like you. I want to be more like you. I want to be more in love with you. I want, to, I want, to, I want my life to be evidence for you and, and for your glory. And that's what he's calling them to in verse 9 here. Smash the idols. Get rid of the stuff that makes us look like the world. Don't live compromised. I love this quote. God will not use a compromised person to reach a compromised world. That convicts me. Say, all right, Lord, I don't want to be compromised. So when I'm you know, browsing Netflix on a Thursday night, looking for something to watch. Well, what if, what if my pastor, what if, you know, the, what if Jesus were sitting there next to me, as cheesy as that is? Sounds. Not cheesy. 
I don't want to... I don't want to do anything that would tarnish his name, you know? God will not use a compromised person to reach a compromised world. So bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So it says in verse 10, Yet the fortified city will be desolate, the habitation forsaken and left like a wilderness. There the calf will feed, and there it will lie down and consume its branches. When its boughs are withered, they will be broken off. The women come to set them on fire, for it is a people of no understanding. Therefore, he who made them will not have mercy on them, and he who formed them will show them no favor. Even though God is going to protect them through the storm, even though it's going to come up to their necks, but they're not going to be taken, the way that it's going to all happen is probably not the way that they would desire, right? We know that these Syrians are going to mount an attack, and then it's going to subside, and things will be okay for a while. But we've already read the book of Ezra. We've already read the book of Nehemiah. We've already read what's going to happen to these people. The Babylonians are going to come in and decimate the land. They're going to take the, the Israelites refu- uh, as refugees to another location. They're going to be, take a remnant and, and move them away, and the land is going to sit desolate for, for a long time. That's what he's saying in verse 10 and verse 11. The, the, the city, the fortified city will be desolate. The habitation forsaken. You know, the animals are just going to wander through the streets of Jerusalem because there'll be nobody there to stop them. They refuse to crush their idols. That was the invitation. Hey, stand for holiness. Crush your idols. And they refuse to do so. They don't heed the advice. And God says, fine. You want idols? I'll give you idols. Off to Babylon, the city full of idols. You want idols? You'll have them up to your nostrils. You want idols? You can have all the idols that you want. There you go. Off to Babylon you go. We see God do that throughout the Old Testament, right? Meat? You want meat? You're complaining in the wilderness because in Egypt you supposedly had things better? Fine, here's meat. Quail. As far as the eye can see, up to the knees. You'll have so much... That's what he literally says. You'll have so much meat, it'll be coming out your nostrils. God says, fine, you're not going to listen to me? Off to Babylon. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt. That's the, the original, uh, or that's the river Euphrates. And you, um, the, uh, sorry, from the channel of the river, the river Euphrates, to the brook of Egypt. And you will be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. So it shall be in that day. The great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. Yes, they were going to be shipped off to Babylon. Yes, they were going to be spread to the four corners of the earth. Yes, they were going to be scattered abroad, but God was going to preserve them and keep a remnant. That was always his intent and plan. He had promised to King David that somebody would always sit on his throne. We know that he has to preserve the lineage of the, the tribe of Judah. We know that, he, 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 that, that uh, they have to take care of Judah because the, the Savior has to come through that line. And so they, he was going to preserve a remnant, even though they were all chipped off. And God here in verse 12 and 13, I'm going to thresh the land. 
from the, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, that was the original boundaries of the nation of Israel. I'm going to gather you back one by one, you children of Israel, when the trumpet will be blown. You're about to perish in the land of Assyria, the land of Egypt, and the Lord calls you back to the holy mount. Sounds a lot like Matthew chapter 24, Jesus talking in the, in the Olivet Discourse. He says in verse 31 of Matthew 24, And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and put forth its leaves, you shall know that summer is near. Anytime we hear about a fig tree, it's also referring to the nation of Israel. And when the, when the branch is put forth and ten, or tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. It's, it's, there's evidence as, um, as it's getting ready to bear fruit. Uh, he's, Jesus continues to say, So you also, when you, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. It began in 1900 or thereabouts. For 1,900 years, well, roughly, rounded, the nation of Israel lay desolate. After 70 AD, when Rome completely decimated Jerusalem and the surrounding area. And there wasn't much but nomadic movement through the land and, and for, for literally nearly 2,000 years. It was an empty place. The, the rivers, uh, the riverbeds, um, the silt that would come out of the um, Nile Delta would move across and, and fill up the ends of the river, riverbeds so that they couldn't drain into the Mediterranean. And, um, and so Israel really kind of became a swampland, this just kind of marshy, murky, dismal area. And then around 1900, Jews started coming back to their area and buying land back from the Arabs that owned it. And they started excavating the riverbeds so that they drained properly. And they started to rebuild the nation. We saw then in 1948 the recognition of the nation of Israel after the events of World War II they become a sovereign nation recognized by the new UN. And since then, Israel has been growing with God's hand and God's blessing upon it. Um, people continuing to return to Israel from the four corners of the earth. The population continuing to grow. We read the blessings that are now happening um, because of the nation of Israel. We know the military strength of the nation of Israel. Remember, just the size of New Jersey yet one of the, the strongest air forces in the world, um, and just a force to be reckoned with. Their technical, the techno, technology of their military is, it far supersedes Russia, far supersedes China, and, and, and the things that they are capable of doing. All this. And then also, cons just consider this for a second. What other nation in the world 
the size of New Jersey do we pay more attention to in the world? Right? Why, do, why would we care about 7 million people? Why would we, you know, I mean, I'm not trying to sound calloused, but it's not like, you know, all the nations that are the size of New Jersey we could name right now. But yet, as they became a nation again, as, as, as they are inhabiting the land, as it is evident that God's hand and God's favor is upon them, do you notice and do you see in the headlines of today that, that the focus of the world is becoming more and more centralized on Israel? That the, the headlines of, of all the nations are, are, are now taking a greater interest in Israel? The, the, you know, one of the things that I'm considering as I consider who to vote for in the upcoming presidential, presidential election is, what's the guy's stance on the nation of Israel? Is this somebody that's going to take our nation and continue to be an ally to Israel? Because that's somebody who I would want to vote for. We, want, we, we believe in the promise that was given to Abraham way back in the book of Genesis that, that whoever blesses the nation of Israel will be blessed and whoever curses the nation of Israel will be cursed. And, and so I want my government to line up with that promise to say, all right, where do you stand? Are you going to be one who blesses the nation of Israel are you going to be one who curses the nation of Israel? And that's who gets my vote. Or that's, you know, that who, that's what determines my vote. It's evident that God's hand is upon this little nation. And all these things that he's leveling against them are for the intent and the purpose of having their hearts turned back to him. I was supposed to do chapter 28 tonight, but it's already 10 after, so I'm going to hold off on that. So let's close with this idea. All these things that God is doing with the nation of Israel, He does for us as well. He, he cares about us. We sang the song, He loves us. And because He loves us, He is willing to discipline us and chastise us He's willing to let us put our hand to something that's not necessarily good for us. We have, a, we have a saying in our house that we try to teach our kids, and we try to show them wrong and right, and we try to lead them in the way that they should go, and we try to train them, but sometimes the best teacher is reality. And you can tell a kid, hey, don't, you know, don't do that, don't do that, don't touch the stove, it's hot, don't touch the stove, it's hot, don't touch the stove, it's hot. But sometimes the best teacher is when the kid touches the stove and he sees that it's hot and he gets the burn on his hand. Oh, and suddenly he won't do that anymore. Sometimes God lets, uh, lets reality be our teacher. Fine, you want to keep pushing me away? Fine, you want to keep pushing me away? Fine, go to Babylon. Go, you, you go wander. I'll be waiting, waiting right here when you're ready to come back. And it's a loving arm that reaches out to us even when we've wandered away from him. He says, come back. I'm ready for you. I'm waiting for you. And so, of course, all through the blood of our Savior, Jesus. Amen? All right, let's stand. Let's close in prayer. Thank you, God, for your love and your watch care over us. Lord, thank you how, how you protect and preserve the nation of Israel. We know that you're not done with them, that that when the, as it says in Matthew 24, that when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, 
that every every heart, every every person of the tribes and nation of Israel will see their Savior in Jesus Christ. They will recognize the folly that they have made and they will return to you. And that there's a day coming when you will rule and reign from that place. Jerusalem, the shining city on the hill. And in that day there will be perfect peace. Lord, as you said in, in John chapter 16, in this world we will have tribulation. You said be of good cheer. So I pray that you would set joy in our hearts. I pray, God, that we would keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, that when we wander and we're prone to wander, that you would bind our wandering hearts to you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. I pray that as we go forth from this place, God, that you would give us the strength to live each day a holy life, wholly devoted to you. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.